Greetings from the Cosmic Horrors. The stars are right once again. The great old ones are allowing us to talk about for 30 minutes. H.P. Lovecraft, the horror writer, is a genre unto himself. I am your cosmic host, Mark Griffin, executor of the Lovecraft Estate on Yaga, joined in by two from Material World, David Guffey, a professor at Mismatonic University, and Richard Wilson, who wants to point out that last month's episode was 44 minutes long and warns us we are pulling a bait and switch on the listeners. When Lovecraft was seven, his mother, Susie, saw him reading The Island of Dr. Moreau by H.G. Wells. She confiscated the book out of concern the gruesomeness of the story about a mad scientist creating weird animal-human hybrids would be too much for young Lovecraft's nerves. That might have been the reason why he read so little of Wells as a child. During his youth, he didn't even read The Time Machine or even War of the Worlds. He did read one of his lesser-known stories, Dream of Armageddon. It was about a dreamer witnessing not only the end of the world, but also his own life, and somehow living on. Lovecraft described it as pretty good. Wells never did achieve enough atmosphere to give me a real emotional reaction, no matter how vivid his events he relates, Lovecraft added. Herbert George Wells, if you're unfamiliar with him, was an English writer who lived from 1866 to 1946, best known for writing science fiction. In fact, he is regarded as one of the fathers of science fiction. At the time he was writing, his fiction was regarded as scientific romances. Today, we think of romances as meaning a love story, but back then, romance was defined as a prose narrative treating imaginative characters involved in events remote in time or place, and usually heroic, adventurous, or mysterious. Unlike most authors, Wells was an overnight success with the publishing of his first novel, Time Machine, which he had written before as a short story, Chronic Argonauts, and every book he wrote afterwards was also a success. He even made it to the cover of Time Magazine. Before he died, over 100 books by him were printed. War of the Worlds first serialized in 1897 experienced a resurgence in popularity when Orson Welles, no relation, adapted into a radio drama for the Halloween season of 1938. At first, H.G. Wells distanced himself from the radio drama, saying it was a contract violation because the broadcast was clearly supposed to be fiction and not news. But he calmed down and later thanked Orson Welles for increasing sales for one of his more obscure titles. It could not have been too obscure because the novel has never been out of print. In fact, none of his major works have ever been out of print. That doesn't mean he's always been popular. George Orwell, a different Well here, regard him as a shallow and adequate thinker. Lovecraft himself became demissive of the author of Scientific Romances. H.G. Well is a ticklish question on my literary scales. I can't derive a really supernatural thrill from matter, which keeps my mental wheels turning so briskly, and yet when I think of some of the things in retrospect supplying my own filter of imaginative color, I am reduced to doubt. He also said, as of Wells, he is fragrantly uneven. He does good things, but trades shamelessly on his reputation and peddles more abominable drivel and hack stuff. Because of the youthful members of his circle of friends, especially August Durlith and Vernon Shea, Lovecraft in his 30s picked up Wells' books again, reading the ones he missed. The change of opinion is noticeable. One of the first William books he read as an adult was War of the Worlds. Before reading it, he wrote, I never read Wells' War of the Worlds, though I mean to sometime. His tales to me lack a certain imaginative charm. Their fantasy is too calculated and scientific, and undercurrent of social satire impairs their convincingness. Afterwards, he wrote, speaking of the cosmic, I just read Wells' War of the Worlds for the first time in Amazing Stories and deemed it the best thing of HGs in which I've ever seen. He really visualizes his situations and does them justice. The tale is obviously the prototype of sources of inferior imitations. He continued reading the works of Wells and described the time machine as thoroughly entertaining in every detail. Some believe this story was the basis for Lovecraft's Shadow of Time. 
Lovecraft scholar S.G. Josie doesn't see the evidence for that. Wells is included in two essays by Lovecraft. In some notes on interplanetary fiction, Lovecraft laments the general low quality of pulp science fiction, but looks to such writers as Wells to raise the aesthetic level of the field. Wells gets mentioned in supernatural horror and literature, which appeared in an issue of the Recluse Fanzine in 1927. A copy of the Recluse was sent to Wells and is unknown if he read it or what he might have thought about it. Lovecraft just didn't read his science fiction, he read his nonfiction as well, especially his trilogy on life, Outline of History, which chronicles the history of the world from the creation of the earth to the First World War, Work, Wealth, and Happiness of Mankind, which covers the issues of economics and most importantly, Science of Life. Science of Life was co-written with evolutionary biologist Julian Huxley and his son G.P. Wells and was printed as a three volume set starting in 1929 to introduce the general public to biology. Lovecraft wanted to read these books but couldn't afford them. One could never do one volume over 12,000 pages justice within the time limits imposed by the public library, he wrote. His friend Vernon Shea loaned him his copy and the series of books changed him remarkably. Eat Poole, what a book. It is by all odds the greatest exposition of biological knowledge which I have ever seen a titanic vital panorama of, of scope, clearness, accuracy, simplicity, coherency, proportionality, and impartiality exceeding the best of previous efforts in the same line. No question but that good OHG is a master outliner of all. Science of Life also addressed the myth of the Aryan race, a concept Lovecraft had embraced for most of his life. First, there is no such thing as an Aryan race, the book stated. There are only groups of people of various stock who speak languages of the Aryan type. Wells was a socialist who envisioned a perfect world through science and technology. He envisioned utopian earth, but did warn of what would happen if we didn't tame a warlike nature, such as he did in the shape of things to come. He accurately predicted the Second World War would occur. George Orwell condemns Wells, but because he belonged to the 19th century to a non-military nation and class, he cannot grasp the tremendous strength of the old world, which was symbolized in his mind of fox hunting Tories. He was and still is quite incapable of understanding that nationalism, religious bigotry, and feudal loyalty are far more powerful forces than what he himself would describe as sanity. Basically, Orwell was calling Wells naive. Lovecraft was wavering between Wells' utopian socialism and, of all people, Hitler's fascism. After reading his Science of Life and other factors, Lovecraft came to renounce Nazism and became a supporter of FDR's New Deal. In many ways, H.G. Wells saved Lovecraft's soul but it's a shame that it came so late in his life. Lovecraft would die in two years. If he lived longer, he might become truly reformed. While still alive, our author of the half hour read Science of Life repeatedly. He talked about returning to Vernon Shea, but as far as I can determine, he never did. All right, David and Richard, our Lovecraftian word of the month is scientifiction. This is a term Lovecraft used to describe the works of H.G. Wells. What is it? You said the word was uh, or scientific 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 fiction then is it a compound word a combining science and fiction that uh, that's a that's a actually it's a it was his phrasing for science fiction it was first coined by hugo hugo gernsback the founder and editor of amazing stories who was uh, also right. the hugo awards named after it was a contraction of scientific <laughs> fiction for him Okay. Yeah, Gern's back to find in the first issue of Amazing Stories in 1926. As you can probably tell, the word never caught on. Obviously. Yeah. 
it doesn't roll off the tongue that well. You know, science fiction yeah. has a much better flow to it. As... Trying to create some kind of handy compound word, but it's like you said, kind of clunky. Yeah, you know, it doesn't sound as good. And as far as I know, they're the only two people who ever use that word. And our Lovecraftian creatures of the month are the deep ones. So who are they? Well, they're the frog-like inhabitants of uh, Innsmouth, right? Yeah. Anything else about them? Are, are we counting uh, Dagan, Father Dagan and, and Mother Hydra as deep ones? Or are the deep ones really just kind of like, again, the, the spawn and the hybrids, you know, of the... According to the sources I've read, they worship Father Dagon and Mother Hydra. So I don't know if they would be... Yeah. So they're, they'd be considered deep ones, but just like, you know, they're, they're aquatic deities that they worshiped. Okay. That's why I'm trying to see where we were drawing the line. On yeah. Most of them just kind of consider the, um, the creatures themselves, okay. you know, it's like the, um, as the, as the deep ones, they don't go as far as, you know, I never heard Father Dagon ever referred to as a deep one. Okay. okay. Well, I can buy that. I think you're right. He's gigantic, right? He's, um, an enormous god that lives under the ocean, right? Uh, yeah, that's a place we call like, you know, Lovecraft's interpretation of him. You know, he is a real, like, you know, deity that was worshiped, you know, like long, long, long ago. So, you know, he's like. So in the, in the movie Underwater, are those deep ones? And is that Father Dagon at the end or is it Cthulhu? That was supposed to be Cthulhu. Probably try, yeah, they're trying to obviously lean into it being Cthulhu. But I, Think what your interpretation sounds a little bit, you know, more in line with Lovecraftian in terms of that Dagon would, you know, be then again there, you know, the, the god they're rallying around, you know, and that those are, you know, the, the deep ones were the ones that were foreshadowing you know, his appearance before that. I, yeah, I could go with that. It seems like most of the stories I've come across about the deep ones, you know, kind of done by other people, they almost kind of like skip Dagon, just go straight to Cthulhu, like, you know, they, they're really more of like, you know, followers of Cthulhu, you know, than Dagon. That's why I wondered if, yeah, they were considered, the two of them, uh, Dagon and Hydra, were considered in the same class, you know, if you will, as Cthulhu, or if they were kind of a level down, and if that was the case, you know, where they fell between, say again, you know, the, the Deep One denizens, and then the likes of, you know, your Cthulhus, your Yogg-Sagoths, and whatnot. Yeah, and I think it's kind of, I don't know that it's explicitly stated uh, in the Shadow of Rensmith about what they're doing, but at the end, is talking about he'll worship forever underground underwater and is he talking about Dagon or is he talking about going to Rilia and uh, worshiping Cthulhu and they're also supposed to specialize in making jewelry of a secret alloy that has been described as a platinum silver and gold oh. somewhere near Innsmouth there's an underwater city that they usually live in it's called Yonghof Nilai and there's a uh, Norwegian band called EOD that did an electronic dance song with that title. And so we can continue our deep dive into Lovecraftian themed metal and other music. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's we could probably do a spin off series of just strictly, you know, Lovecraftian metal, you know, music themed podcast. It's just about all the various Lovecraft themed bands. Definitely do that. Uh, they first appeared in the Vela uh, Shadow Over Innsmouth, which was printed in 1931 or written. They're said to be hinted in the short story Dagon, which was written in 1917. There's a fan site that I came across, fandom site. It says that all the hybrids come from a female deep one and a male human. It is a safety measure for the fact that both possess a limiting growth gene for their own species. 
I've never come across that interpretation in any type of like, you know, Lovecraft story, you know, about it. Either. Yeah. And then, well, again, this isn't Lovecraft. This is, you know, Alan Moore and Providence. It was the other way around. As far as it, the, it was the male, you know, was the deep one. And then they were there going after the human females. So, yeah. Anyway. <laughs> Maybe that's why that child was more special than the others. Many, if not all, the scissors or ends mouth are hybrids. Uh, some of them are more fish, frog than the human. The, the fandom site continued that when the hybrids become too obviously non-human, they go into seclusion and hiding in abandoned buildings until fully capable of living solely underwater. Uh, the rate of progression varies for each individual. However, it normally does not reach completion until a human middle age. Once transformation is complete, they're also functionally immortal. Were the deep ones ever considered immortal? Is it just? I think so, yeah. I think that's uh, at least implied, if not outright stated. Because you know, he'll, he'll live underwater and worship forever and ever, or whatever it says at the end of the shadow over Innsmouth. Well, I always kind of got a sense, you know, that raid that comes close to the end of Shadow Ren's mouth, you know, they go with the government agents that, I guess, like, you know, they had a big fight out, you know, with them. And I guess I always kind of assumed that some of the deep ones were killed in that. Oh, I assumed they could be killed, but I mean, what they're saying is right. they, don't, yeah, they, they, they just they, don't age. They're not going to die of old age, but they can still be killed by external forces. And I like this one sentence I had on the fandom site. says, apart from the physical change, they feel a scorn for humanity and affinity for non-Euclidean artwork of the deep one race an increasingly powerful desire to abandon the human world and to go to Yohaf Nilai. One of the notable citizens that's appeared in some of the stories was Azrath Waite, who was in um, The Thing on the Doorstep. It was like one of the other, I guess, Innsmouth stories, even though Innsmouth wasn't quite as prominent as several people were from there. Zadok Allen, who is, is presumed to be one of the few humans who lives in Innsmouth, and if you get him drunk, he'll tell you a lot of interesting stories. And uh, the Deep Ones and their hybrids have appeared in a good number of movies. Like we were mentioned, um, Underwater, Stuart Gordon's Dagon. I, was, I found a very entertaining movie. I, I like that one. And we did talk about last month, uh, the movie, The Deep Ones, which we decided was probably best to avoid. And then no, there's- no, There's no end of that one yet. Yeah. And uh, the Creatures of the Black Lagoon could be called Deep One, but he was not inspired by Lovecraft. Uh, producer William Allen had heard of the myths of half-fish, half-human creatures in the Amazon River. And with elements of Beauty and the Beast and King Kong, Allen worked into a story originally titled The Sea Monster. Guillermo del Toro made his own version of the creature of the Black Lagoon called Shape of the Water, in which the gill man and the girl get together in the end. Don't have those pesky humans, you know, ruining everything for them. And while that may, may some people think of Hellboy, which del yeah. Toro also adapted in the movies, and you have Ab Abe Sapien, who is definitely could be related to Gilman and the Deep Ones. The Deep Ones also appear in the game Alone in the Dark, which we'll talk about a little bit later. Uh, the Murdochs in the game of Warcraft 3, Reign as Chaos, are supposed to be inspired by the Deep Ones. Uh, Note of video game, Etrian Odyssey 3, players fend off Deep Ones who are determined to free the abysmal god, who is more or less Cthulhu. The plot to Elder Scrolls 4, Oblivion, uh, borrows heavily from Shadow of Innsmouth. Uh, the Deep Ones get mentioned, but they're never seen. They're worshipped by the people of Hectert. In fact, the uh, the title of that little quest they go through is called Shadow of Hectert. There's another, there's a horror movie, a more relatively recent one, called Cold Skin, 
it very much. Yeah, plays out the deep ones as far as those are the ones that Ray Stevenson's lighthouse keeper is fending off that keep coming after him every night that are trying to, you know, to basically, you know, he's fending the the soul man on the, you know, uh, you know, manning the lighthouse, trying to, you know, deal with this endless army of deep ones that are coming up out of the water. It's called cold skin. Cold skin. Cold skin. Or is that on any of the yeah, it's on likely it's streaming on of, services? It's on one of the hundred okay. streaming services. There's another video too. It's uh, the one I played a demo of uh, a number of months back called "The Shore," and most of the uh, your initial enemies that you face are the deep or deep ones that come out of the water of the shore. With the end of the demo being that you summon Cthulhu. I'm not sure as far as in the rest of the game, as far as if the full game's released, you know how much of a role they have in that. But they're they're very much and clearly intended to be. You know, here's the deep ones, and then your end boss is Cthulhu. They almost seem like almost like be a, a, a good favorite for a lot of you know Lovecraftian fans or like writers like you know to throw in. I I seem to see them more than I do like you know some of the others. Mm-hmm. You know, like you don't see the Migos used a lot. You know, she's like comparatively, <laughs> yeah, as far as they're the go-to, as far as kind of your entry level. Yeah, I guess they're, they, I guess they're more cinematic looking or something. You know, it's a little harder to like, you know, have like giant crayfish, you know, tanking people. Well, as far yeah, particularly as in terms of because you can introduce them so easily. As far as uh, you're going to, you know, your small town fishing village or whatever, and hey, these people look kind of funny, and then progressing further from there, or that, as opposed to some of the other ones require a little more introduction and back there aren't as easy to you know just kind of immerse yourself into or as a stranger going into a small town. Anyway, I got some updates on some of the previous creatures we talked about. Uh, you may remember in episode four, we discussed how to pronounce Cthulhu's name. I was listening to an interview of S.T. Josie, and he pronounced it in a very different way. He pronounced it Clulu. And um, he said it just as civilized like that, which sounds just a little too, you know, unlovecrafty and say it like that. Because the Lovecraft one, it, the first syllable he pronounced very guttural and very thick. So I think it should be more like Clulu, you know, kind of like that. So you're clearing your throat. Can you say that again? Clulu or Clulu. That's our different pronunciations of Cthulhu that we all come across. You know, we all seem to go back to the standard uh, when everybody says incorrectly, just because it just seems more natural to guess to people. You'd be mad if Wait. we were like be correcting everybody. Yeah. Wait, which one is incorrect? <laughs> yeah, Cthulhu is not the correct way to say it. Clulu. It's not the preferred nomenclature. Not the, not the creator's preference. Yeah, Clulu is how Josie says it. Considering that, you know, he's probably studied Lovecraft more than anyone else on this planet, you know, that have, he probably has more authority on how to pronounce it anyway. Yeah, but, he, but when he's interviewed, he'll, let, he'll say that. At the risk of angering Hester again, I'm going to talk about him one more time. That didn't and, work uh, out. I know. We're going, there I'm goes the out. show. I, I've gone cross my fingers. Uh, I just finished reading The Return of Hester by August Derleth, which appeared in the March 1939 edition of Weird Tales. Uh, this was Dorlos' attempt at a sequel at Call of Cthulhu, and where efforts were made to return Hester to Earth, hence the name. Uh, Lovecraft never read the story, but he knew about it. Uh, Dorlith wanted to include a line, in his house of Beetlejuice, banished Hester awaits dreaming. Uh, Lovecraft advised him not to use Beetlejuice to represent a primal name for the distant sun, or to represent the name used by denizens of any of its hypothetical planets since this name was an Arabic product of the Middle Ages. And since the word Beetlejuice is so holy and recognized to be a terrestrial coinage with a known terrestrial 
etymology, excuse me. As Lovecraft confided at Clark Ashton Smith about the story, in inventing the unknown, one must be careful not to contradict the known. Derleth does appear to have downplayed Beetlejuice in the story. I'm more curious about what Lovecraft would have thought of Hester and Cthulhu being half-brothers. Derleth failed to mention uh, who their common parent is. Clark Ashton Smith did read the story a few months after Lovecraft's death and found it unsatisfactory. He even suggested ways to improve the tale, such as creating a vague, menacing atmosphere and eerily growing tension around Hester and make Haddon, the narrator, more of a skeptic until the accumulation of all the weird phenomena leaves him with no possible alternative. Derleth does not appear to have taken any of Smith's advice over that. Earlier, we talked about the deep ones in video games. And uh, David, you wanted to talk about some Lovecraft-themed computer games. Well, way, way back in the day, when I first got a, a PC and it had two megabytes of RAM, I had a, I had a few video games that I would play. And uh, one of them was um, uh, Alone in the Dark. This was around 1992. Really, I mean, if you, <clears throat> you can look this up on any of the... There's a, an Alone in the Dark wiki. If you want to look it up, you can see screenshots. And basically everything is uh, like shaded polygons. It's Everything is made out of these little triangular shapes. It's, um, at the time, it just seemed fantastic. And now it looks a little dated, to say, to say the least. Um, but you have the choice of playing two different characters. You can be Edward Carnby or um, oh, what's her name? Uh, Emily Hartwood. So it was, you know, had an equal uh, opportunity uh, adventure there for if you wanted to be a man or a woman and basically you you were exploring this uh, um, haunted mansion and you would encounter several creatures like ghouls uh, zombies there's some night gaunts i'd totally forgotten about that and i ran across uh, some screen captures of those surprisingly they're not too bad for what they for the graphics capability that they had at the time that was 1992 and then Alone in the Dark 2 came out in 93, and Alone in the Dark 3 came out in 1994. They rebooted the series in 2001 with Alone in the Dark, The New Nightmare. And I think Mark had some inf information about a comic book prequel. And there's also actually uh, a movie with Christian Slater, I believe, called Alone in the Dark that's based off of that 2001 uh, uh, game. So. Yeah, the, if you're um, interested in playing it, I think you can get you can get a bundle from Steam with Alone in the Dark and, and several other of those games together. You cannot just purchase Alone in the Dark so far that I've found anywhere right now. And now the uh, the first three Alone in the Darks took place in the 1920s, didn't they? Questions, comments. The uh, the first Alone in the Dark, first three Alone so, in the Darks. Yes. Yeah, I thought they did, yeah. and then. There were more modern settings for the other ones. I, I read through some of the the gameplay, and it, it's been obviously been thirty years since I played it. But some of the the monsters that showed up there is uh, the one I'd forgotten about. It's really pretty interesting. Is a Chthonian, which is some sort of a giant worm that lives underneath this house. I don't know if they show up in Lovecraft or not, but that might be a creature to look into for a future episode. A Chthonian. Uh, C-T-H-O-N-I-A-N. Okay. Look that one up. I did uh, watch the movie that came out in 2005. Oh, did you? Yes, I did. Oh, okay. It's playing on the hoopla. Is it also set in the 20s or is it a modern day setting? 
it was a modern day, which really is what caused a lot of fans to be angered by the movie because it felt it such a radical departure because it was originally intended to, to be released cult with the same time as the, the video game that they when they rebooted. But something happened with the video game and it got delayed. And so the movie got released first. And so it was such a radical departure. And that was probably one reason why people hated the movie. It had several strikes against it. It was directed by U.E. Boyle, um, who was... Yeah. regarded pretty much as the world's worst filmmaker and um, it had Tara Reid in it and she doesn't even get like a high reputation with like a lot of fans either and, I don't uh, know there's you know yeah. she's alright yeah it was, I didn't she got nominated for like a worst actress for that movie and I didn't think she was that bad you know to get like you know a worst actress award you know it, it got a, it had a budget of 20 million and it only made 12.7 million and it, you know, it had such a reputation of being such a bad movie, you know, that by the time I watched it, I'm kind of like watching, well, you know, it's not that bad of a movie, you know, it's grand, it's not great, you know, but it's, it has a lot of problems. And, oh, yeah. Yeah, but I, I do enjoy seeing Christian Slater, and I do wish he was in better film projects. Yeah, he did, sort of disappeared lately, uh, other than Mr. Robot, I guess. That's the last thing I saw him in. himself in Mr. Robot, he's really good at that. But as far as movies, like trying to think of the last good movie or that I'd seen him in. But yeah, a lot of people yeah, transition, you know, into TV work and you know do a lot of good stuff in there. So he does a lot of directed uh, directed DVD um, type stuff. The movies he'll appear in, kind of like, you know some action film with like really generic titles and stuff yeah. like that that could star anybody. But you know they have him. I did find a quote from the original screenwriter for um, the Blair Eckerson. Uh, for Alone in the Dark, who uh, was not happy with the changes that U.E. Uh, made into it. And his quotes go like, the original script took Alone in the Dark premise and depicted it as it actually was actually based on the true story of a private investigator in the northeastern U.S. whose missing person cases began to uncover a disturbing paranormal secret. It was told through the eyes of a writer following Everett Carnby and his co-worker for a novel and depicted them as real-life blue-collar folks who never expected to find hideous beings waiting for them in the dark. He tried to st we tried to stick as close to H.P. Lovecraft's style and the low-tech nature of the original game, always keeping the horror in the shadows so you never see what was coming for them. Thankfully, Dr. Boyle was able to hire his loyal team of hacks and crank out something much better than our crappy story and add in all sorts of terrifying horror movie essentials like opening gateways to alternative dimensions, bimbo blonde archaeologists, sex scenes, mad scientists, slimy dog monsters, special army forces designated to battle slimy CGI dog monsters, Tara Reid, matrix slow motion gun battles and car chases, and oh yeah, and a 10 minute opening backstory scroll read aloud to the illiterate audience, the only people able to successfully miss all the negative reviews. I mean, hell Boyle knows what a real scare lies. So he, wow, he really, uh, yeah, he, he just didn't hold anything back. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, he was a uh, he was quite uh, upset about it, uh, but somehow the other it, it it got a sequel. Christian Slater wasn't in the sequel, from what I've read of it, I haven't seen it or anything, but it's supposed to be slightly better than the original. And it seemed they just completely ignored the first movie and just did something else. Well, there's not there's not a lot of room but to go up you know <laughs> there's not a lot of video games that translate well into movies although Yui Bowles kind of got a you know it's kind of made a career out of that because he did I'm trying to think he did the 
video adaptation of Postal, another video game, adaptation of Blood Rain, another video game, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So you know, I think that's his bread and butter out there. Yeah, that seems to be his thing. You know, he's doing a lot of those movies They're based on video games. He seems his reputation's gotten a little bit better. It seems like he's not quite as regarded as the world's worst filmmaker ever, but he's never going to be like a Citizen Kane or anything like that. Oh, or he was in a fight in a boxing match with some critic that was make, that was slamming on his movies. Is yeah. That, I'm remembering that right. Yeah, yeah, that was. He did challenge um, several of his critics to a boxing match, and I think he actually did fight one. I think he beat him up. And so, you know, I bet that made him feel really good. <laughs> some elderly guy that had been sitting behind a typewriter for years yeah yeah, yeah i'm sure he i'm sure that was a fair fight yeah yeah <laughs> montage to fight you evil <laughs> and um, uh, richard did you want to talk about the um, the comic book die or anything it's for yeah it's in terms of uh there's a comic series out now from image comics called die with the double meaning being you know rolling a die in a role-playing game and then obviously mm-hmm. to actually die about a group of characters like childhood friends who get sucked into uh, the actual world of you know a, a RPG that they created together. But the one of the hooks of it is that the there are various influential people that show up throughout the course of the this other world they created. Uh, Tolkien, H.G. Uh, Wells, who we were talking about earlier, another of uh, other influential authors and that type of thing show up. And then the most recent issue, they're going into a Lovecraft theme because of the Call of Cthulhu RPG as far as that's concerned, because he's kind of like hitting on various styles of uh, RPGs or role-playing games and whatnot. So now they're just now getting into one where there's the deep ones. I mean, we're talking about an entry level very much. They start off, you know, going to a fishing village and there are some people with the Innsmouth look and they're the deep ones. And that kind of clues them into the fact that, oh, we're going into the Lovecraft arc at this point. I wouldn't say it's a good jumping on point, like say for when we talk about Miskatonic, you know, being something you could start with an issue one on you want to probably start at the beginning because starting in issue 16 that was probably <laughs> unless you were just there to spot the lovecraft references and that kind of thing but as far as uh, i figured they would kind of get into it at some point particularly given the popularity uh, of the call of cthulhu rpg series because you'd be hardcore and just like just read it cold you know and like yeah. and i'm like, only here for lovecraft references yeah. yeah, make up make up your own backstory of what's going on. I don't need to know what's actually happening. Going back to H.G. Wells, I saw in Canopy they had the um, Things to Come, which was directed by William Cameron Menzies and was based on one of Wells' novels, and he also wrote the screenplay for it. And Lovecraft saw this movie, and it was one of those movies where he was kind of like, you know, warning people about like, you know, like a, you know, like a, to stop our warlike nature and start embracing like, you know, such concept as science. Love, to quote Lovecraft, I saw the movie version of Wells' Things to Come the other day and was tremendously impressed. Mere size is quite overpowering sometimes. Those incredible huge planes roaring through the clouds with 20th century ships buzzing infinitesimally as hornets against their wheels. Probably such monsters wouldn't fly, but they did produce a tremendous effect. And the scenes of warfare with little bat-winged planes swarming through the clouds so thickly that the air was black with them. I think I should remember for a long while the scenes in the city of the far future. Panorama so vast that the eyes couldn't take them all in. The towers of the windless buildings rising pure and sleek in the air. Webbed with crystal spans for traffic. And through the bright air crowds of people in remotely Grecian robes moving over shining streets. 
you should see the picture if you have a chance. I have to say that the things that he liked about the movie, I liked about the movie as well. I love the special effects for it. You know, had like very practical effects as well. You know, no CGI. So, you know, they built models, you know, for these like giant ships in the cities and stuff like that. And I have, um, I guess I have a special affinity for like when people actually build something, you know, for their, for their movie to have, you know, for a special effect. I was quite impressed by, um, by those little special effects he had, especially like some of the aerial battle scenes that they had, you know, like the, the planes fighting against the gigantic planes from the future. And I need to watch it sometime. I, I've maybe seen bits and pieces of it, but I haven't seen the, the whole thing. It's up. Uh, I recommend it. I could I could see Gene Roddenberry watching this and getting the ideas of doing Star Trek. You know, this is kind of like you know, how he felt. And it, it's it's really eerie watching it because this like was done before World War II started. And, you know, like when you see like, you know, London being invaded and bombed, it, uh, it, it kind of like, is really eerie, you know, to see that. Especially when you know that this is like you know almost like predicting the future, so it was quite impressive that stuff. There's another Lovecraft podcast out. It's actually been out since 2019, but it's called Volumimus, and it's the Letters of H.P. Lovecraft, which uh, Andrew Lehman and Sean Branley uh, discussed and read the letters of, of the author. Uh, it's estimated that he wrote 100,000 letters, roughly 15 a day, in his adult life. And they range from one-page diaries to 70-page diatribes. And it's believed that only 20,000 of these letters survive today. After he died, August Dorloff contacted as many people who had corresponded with the author and had the letters transcribed, which I find quite impressive that him and his secretary just like transcribed all these letters. I, as you know, as, I mean, Dorloff was busy himself doing his own writing and other things, and I just don't know how he found time to do everything that he did. And, but the letters were returned, and so these, these transcripts that we rely on. And um, to quote the podcast, in his letters, Lovecraft revealed an amazing breadth of knowledge and philosophy, science, history, and literature, art, and many other subjects, and forcefully asserts the high considered opinions and somewhat can be upsetting opinions. And that's putting it very mildly. You know, it's like a Lovecraft did did folks his views on a lot of things. Some things you just be agree with and other times it's gonna break your heart some of the things that he says. <laughs> I was quite impressed because like some of these letters go on for quite some time. I mean, they could spend like an hour just reading one of the letters and then like, like you know, they stop and like you know, and read it. I mean, talk about it. So that I recommend that for anybody who's very interested in kind of getting to know more of the insight of, of Lovecraft. Mm -hmm. And while on the subject of his letters, there's another book of his missus coming out. Uh, these are going to be the letters to E. Hoffman Price and Richard F. Searight. E. Hoffman Price was a weird fiction was a fellow weird fiction writer. Um, he had met Lovecraft in 1932 when he was visiting in New Orleans, and Price is the only person who has met in person the Trinity of weird fiction, which includes also Clark Ashton Smith and Robert E. Howard. No one else can ever make that claim to fame. Lovecraft and Price collaborated together on Through the Gates of the Silver Key. It's not mentioned in the blurs, but I'm curious to learn if they discussed race in their letters. Hoffman's story of the infidel's daughter angered the Ku Klux Klan. And at one point in his life, Lovecraft saw the Klan as very important in preserving American civilization. It'd be curious to see if Hoffman had any positive influence on Lovecraft's xenophobia. And Richard, yeah, Richard Searright um, had sought out Lovecraft in 1933 to revive his stories and poems. Lovecraft did not revise anything by him, but they continued corresponding. 
Uh, these letters had been printed before in a booklet, but it's been out of print and very expensive to obtain. I'm looking very forward to seeing that thing of all the other volumes of letters I've picked up and still trying to read. They're not, they're not something you can just read on the beach and anything like that. Yeah, some light reading. For... Yeah. yeah you got to be a certain frame of mind in order to like, you know, to like get to and read them all. During a random search, I discovered a few people are selling Lovecraftian themed perfumes and essential oils. There is like the HP Lovecraft natural perfume oil. And one of the blurbs they give for it is to echo HP Lovecraft's traditional upbringing, this perfume oil layers classic notes of cedar and patchouli, a, a balance of lime, black peppercorn, salty ocean air rise from the basic notes of the chant of an elder god, evoking the darker and more mysterious elements of both the author's personality and the worlds he penned. I don't normally think of Lovecraft like that, but you know. One customer response says like, I bought this from my sister and she loves everything H.P. Lovecraft. She said it smells like frankincense and she loves it. And then there's the Black Phoenix Alchemy and they sell Al Azarif, Mispatonic University, Cthulhu and Narcolethotep brands of essential oils. And there's another company called Lovecraft Therapy Sky Aromatherapy Oil. I get a sense this company is, is unaware of the author and they just happen to use that name because it sounded clever to them. Some like, you know, a variation of witchcraft. Yeah, like the people peddling this oh, like, okay. green, you know, products or whatever like that. But I'm like, are you aware of the, the movie of the same name? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, there, there's some beard oil, Cthulhu beard oil by Humphreys Handmade. It's seawater citrus. Uh, but they also have the Kraken beard oil, 99 millimeter beard oil. Buffalo Bill, <clears throat> Buffalo Bill from the Sounds of the Lambs, and I get a feeling that this is basically the same product, but they just slap different labels on it, and maybe have a little something. At least the, you know, in the the Jonathan Denny one, I don't know as far as. Yeah, I wonder how they can use Buffalo Bill. They must be licensing that. I can see them getting by with Lovecraft beard oil, but I nope. don't know. Would Thomas Harris allow that? Nope. <laughs> The name Buffalo Bill, you know, you could like say it's anything, you know, you could say something. Well, yeah, as far as you know. But obviously you think it's Buffalo Bill from the Silence of the Lambs. So are they touting it as that? Or are they they're saying it's, you know, well, Buffalo Bill yeah, with the, the gun? Consumer. Their label has a very Silence of the Lamb look to it. Yeah. Yeah. So okay. that's it. But, you know, Buffalo okay. Bill, because I don't know if, I don't know even trademark, he may not have even trademarked Buffalo Bill. So, you know, they can, he, he can get around that. Plus, you know, Buffalo Bill's historical name. Yeah. There are ways to get around stuff like that. And there's a second Cthulhu beard oil. It's done by the Infernal Beard Company. And the materials they have in theirs is rosewood, black pepper, rosemary, cedarwood, and sweet almond. And then you have the Devil's Mark Cthulhu beard balm. It's coffee and chocolate. And they proudly and they're proudly made in the USA. None of these scents and flavors sound very infernal or eldritch. To yeah. Me. <laughs> uh, yeah. Relatively. It, need to be, it needs to be like Wolf's Bane or uh, you know, uh, some, some Nightshade. Night. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> or like if you're going to have like, you know, like, a, like deep ones, if you have like a deep one, like this, you know, aroma, you know, have like have a fish smell or something like that or a frog smell. You know, some yeah. type of exotic sea salt or something like that. Yeah, that's salmon weird. oil. Yeah, or like you know, mm -hmm. some smells like brimstone. You know, there you go. You know, anything like that. 
And if that's you don't how have, I want to smell all day. Yeah. <laughs> I just dug myself out of a hell pit. And <laughs> yeah. It, but yeah. if you don't have a beard, you can buy a, an inflatable Cthulhu beard. So, you know, what's an inflatable beard? Yes, an inflatable beard has like the little tentacles at the bottom, kind of like you know, Davy Jones in the Pirates of the Caribbean movies. Does it wave? Is it, when you say it's inflatable as far as in those kind of ones you see at the used car lots. I'm sure if you like moved your head around, it might move, you know, wave and stuff like that. But it's like, um, it's like, it's just like something like, it's a, you know, you blow into it, you know, it's kind of like one of those old inflatable like toys you used to have when you're little. It doesn't have much, you know, like a, if it, maybe it caught a really good windstorm or something might move, but it look like you do very much. Yeah. Okay. And, yes. Never know what you're going to learn here on this program. I picked up another comic. It was called The Adventures of Cthulhu Jr. and Dashley Dirk. And this was a Halloween comic fest from 2019. Dashley Dirk is a wannabe supervillain who is informed he needs to capture the son of Cthulhu to achieve his lifelong dream of being admitted into the League of Evil. And evil is an acronym for every villain in literature. According to the blurb, hilarity and hijinks ensure in this genuinely all-ages comic when a bumbling bad guy discovers Cthulhu Jr. has moved in next door. They just had that one issue. Uh, they never did any more. Though a original graphic novel is supposed to be coming out in, in the fall of 2021. The writer of this was Dirk Manning. Some of his writing credits include uh, doing a comic for the Twisted Band, if you all remember their kind of like the um, one of those uh, slipknot knockoffs and stuff like that, or offshoots. And he seems to join doing tales of characters who have have names for better can be puns like Mr. Ree or Terra Normal. Some is more higher profile stuff is like with Mercy Spark, the Grim Fairy Tales through Xenoscope. Uh, he wrote a foreword for Bomb Queen Time Bomb graphic novel. And he even wrote a letter to Walking Dead number 46, which for some reason he decided to put in his writing credits. Be comprehensive. Yes. Everything. Yeah. Scoot McMahon is the, uh, is the artist, and his credits are Sammy the Samurai Squirrel and a wrapped up Kid Mummy series. That's that. I did see there's a, um, someone else is trying to do another comic book with Cthulhu in it, and this one he's going to be fighting against Uncle Sam. And the blurb for that one is, when cultists attempt to summon Cthulhu during World War II, only Uncle Sam can save the world. This is on Kickstarter right now. And from the reactions I've gotten from other people, they're not supportive of this project at all. They don't seem too crazy about it. We got a response back from Ron Whitehead. I made a mention about him in the last episode about like his use of one of a Lovecraftian word. And um, I'm gonna try my best to kind of capture his energetic energy as he responded back to this. One Icyclopean peering down into a midnight bottom of his outhouse. Thank you, I love it. Fantastic program, oh, great work. Thanks, Mark. Ron Whitehead has just been named the U.S. National Beat Poet Laureate for 2021-22 by the National Beat Poet Foundation. So congratulations to him. Dave and Richard, I see the stars are no longer right. We must cease all discussions until next month when they align again. 30 Minutes of HP Lovecraft is sponsored by the Cthulhu Nose Hairs Oils. This podcast was created in association with the LovecraftPod.com and the Logan Speculative Fiction Group with help from Logan County Public Library the Lovecraft Eternal Facebook page, and the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast, and the great old ones. Special thanks to Katie Tyson for her technomancy. 
and Joshua Dukes for his dispensary. You can reach us at mark at lovecraftpod.com, richard at lovecraftpod.com, or david at lovecraftpod.com. And to meet again, may you avoid the wrath of Princess Cthulhu and her offer to watch Alone in the Dark. Thank you.